Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, delivering frontline worker pay in Minnesota, building a high school cybersecurity program from the ground up. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, and you'll learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Republican governors from 25 states are calling on President Biden to provide them with detailed data related to the people who are entering the country through the U.S.-Mexico border. The governors say they're requesting, quote, honest, accurate, detailed information about where migrants are currently living in the U.S., as well as asylum claim timelines, qualification rates, and deportations. While only a handful of states actually sit along the southern border, Montana Governor Greg Gianforte, who spearheaded the letter, says the, quote, crisis at the southern border extends to every state. California lawmakers are seeking new regulations on generative AI. State Senator Scott Weiner is proposing legislation that would require large language models to meet transparency standards when they exceed a certain quantity of compute. He's also recommending security measures on the technology. Vermont has a new statewide CIO. Denise Riley Hughes, the former Deputy Secretary for the state's Agency of Digital Services, is the state's new IT leader. Riley Hughes has been serving as the interim CIO since the retirement of Sean Naylor in July. She spent more than 20 years in the private sector, including seven years at Microsoft and 15 years at IT services firm PC Connection Services. You can find these stories and more at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. Minnesota is delivering relief funding for the workers at the front lines during the crisis moments of the COVID-19 pandemic. The program was signed into law in April of 2022 and in less than six months began delivering relief funding to affected workers. It was a result of an interagency collaboration between the state's IT department as well as the Department of Labor and Industry and others. That effort is nominated for a 2023 NACIO State IT Recognition Award. Nicole Blissenbach is the commissioner of the state's Department of Labor and Industry. She tells State Hoops Kelly Quinlan how the program got started. As the uh, original bill um, that would establish the frontline worker pay program was moving through the legislature, uh, we were identified, the Department of Labor and Industry was identified as as really the lead agency. Uh, So we were um, identified as the agency that would develop the application um, and do the communications and make sure that we were reaching out uh, to employers so that they understood um, that they needed to be telling their employees who may be eligible about the program. Um, so we, we kind of took the, took the reins on the program and uh, started to de- develop the relationships we needed to develop with the other agencies that would be involved. Um, and just kind of ushered the program through as the lead agency in charge of administering administering the program. That was really our our role. Right. And then one of the things that I saw that y'all were involved with um, was, you know, from legislature or legislation passing to getting it live. I would love to hear about that process. And uh, I know that you guys did some outreach, some, uh, you launched an informational website. Walk me through that process. Yeah, I mean, and we, we knew from, from before the legislation was even signed into law by the governor that this would be a very high profile project. It had been getting attention um, from the second it was introduced as a bill. Um, And we also knew that we'd be under kind of intense scrutiny that it would need to be built and implemented quickly uh, and also flawlessly (laughs) because uh, it was 
such a high profile program that would impact uh, so many Minnesotans uh, during a time that they were on the front lines during the pandemic. So, um, so we put a lot of time and effort into looking at how we would build the program. Um, we, I don't know if a, a program of this size, I know that we at the Department of Labor and Industry had never done a program like this, really of the same nature as this program. So we started doing a lot of research into how, into um, how we could make sure it was uh, accessible uh, to people from all areas of the state and many different jobs and uh, many different languages. Um, so the day the, the, the governor signed the bill into law, we had a website ready to go up and running. We hit launch on the website. Um, we had uh, information, FAQs, uh, um, and, and really started to get that information out so people could look at what the eligibility criteria were, how we would be, um, when approximately when we would be launching the application. Um, so that it, putting fact sheets out so people understood uh, what the legislation did and didn't do uh, and uh, really started that communications campaign. Um, we made sure to get that uh, out in many different, uh, uh, through many different channels. So radio, um, advertisements on social media, website, uh, and in many different languages. We had, um, uh, we made sure everything was translated into um, the primary languages spoken in Minnesota. So it was um, a big lift, but we knew that that communication side of things would, would be essential to the success of the overall program. Right. And so from there and getting like just awareness out, the the big push was really like with the application portal, right? And like making that a one-stop shop for everything that these frontline workers who, you know, have had sacrificed a lot, um, were able to apply apply for their benefits. Would you mind talking to me about, you know, why the one-stop platform was important to implement? Yes. Um, like I said, we knew we would have people from kind of all different backgrounds in lots of different occupations um, be, uh, you know, be applying and, and eligible for this program. So when we uh, started working with the IT vendor on what the application would look like, we knew it had to be pretty straightforward, um, available in different languages, uh, that we would, um, that the, we needed certain things that the statute required us to have in the application, that we had to ask those things, but um, also make it easy for people to be able to create an account, sign in, and then knowing that later in the application period, there would be denials with an opportunity to appeal, um, that we could bring people back to the same, uh, inter you know, the same platform to go through the appeal process if that was something the applicant uh, needed to do. So it was really important to develop that platform, make it easy to use, make it so that somebody could come back and easily figure out uh, how to file an appeal um, and also have that platform be the source of communication that would go out to the applicants so that we weren't creating kind of the insurmountable hurdles for people who were eligible to go through the process and, and ultimately receive the benefit. 
Yeah, that's just, that's a lot of moving parts. And one of the parts of this that I think is so fascinating is the way in which the automation processes were incorporated into reviewing applications and especially through the appeal process, because that seems to have been one of the more uh, labor intensive portions of this, of this effort. So would you mind talking about why the the automations were helpful in, in, you know, getting this up off the ground? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when we had, we knew that this would be a popular program. And, you know, I think in the, the end, we had a little over 1.2 million people apply for the program. Um, we don't have the resources at the Department of Labor and Industry, uh, nor do we, even if you take into account the entire state, uh, state system, to review 1.2 million applications, especially in the time frame that we were given to do so. So we knew we needed to build in automation at basically every point in the process that we could, uh, whether that was automation on um, checking to make sure people were eligible and met the, uh, there was an adjusted gross income threshold. Uh, there was uh, an unemployment insurance benefit threshold that needed to be met. Um, there were employment thresholds that needed to be met. So building the automation um, both at the agency levels and then within the system, the application portal were necessary. Um, so we had lots of custom scripts that we worked with our IT vendor to um, put into the program so that we didn't need a live human touch on every application as it went through the different phases of the program. Um, and it really, I mean, the automation was the reason we were able to turn um, turn this program around in such quick timing. I mean, I think from the day the, the uh, contract with the IT vendor was signed to the launch of the application, I believe there were 20 business days uh, in that time frame, which is unheard of. And then from the day the legislation was signed into law until the day we started issuing payments, I think was a little... Um, over five months. So it was, um, you know, it really fast and furious, but that automation made that happen. Yeah, definitely. It seems like it was such a helpful, like, you know, portion of this. Um, and then another thing that I think is really unique about this is that the fraud prevention, uh, you know, mechanisms were like baked into every single part of this. Um, and I, especially when we consider like how much fraud occurred during the pandemic with the, with this, uh, different types of, you know, payments that were available, um, and benefits and whatnot, you know, how did you guys go about considering this threat, um, as it relates to, you know, such a well-intended program? Yeah, it was front of mind throughout the entire program. Um, that's, I think what I can say, the, you know, we knew that we need, and, and it's not a this or that, right? It's a, you, you want to create a program that's not going to create insurmountable hurdles to get people who are eligible their money, um, but does what it, everything it can do to prevent the people who are not eligible or who may be trying to um, take advantage of the system from getting that money. Because the way this program was set up, the $500 million that was allocated to the program would be split equally amongst all of the eligible applicants. So every fraudulent actor that got through was taking money away from the people who deserved it. 
so that was really the balance we had in mind throughout the whole program was not creating hurdles for the people who deserve the money while doing everything we could to prevent anybody uh, who was a fraudulent actor from uh, receiving that money. And that um, took the, the shape, it took many different forms um, from identity verification in the application process to um, deduplication uh, of the applicants that we received to identifying certain fraud indicators and having those indicators uh, uh, pull information out about certain applications that we knew had um, had a certain level of suspicion and then reviewing those applications. So it really was um, you know, spread throughout the process uh, so that we could keep, um, keep scrutinizing the applications that needed scrutiny, um, but make sure that the ones that didn't were sailing through without too much in the way of um, hassle. Now, I'm just curious, like having gone through this in a, in a project to this scale, which you say, you know, a DLI has never done before. Um, was there anything you might've done differently or was there a learning moment that sticks out to you that you're going to carry with you throughout, you know, any of the upcoming projects you guys have going on? Yeah, I mean, there were, I think the, the thing I learned most is that if, if it, uh, if you can think it, it will happen. <laughs> so um, there's no, I think, real way to be completely prepared for a program of this magnitude that will touch as many people as this program touched. Um, but all of the dedication of the staff that worked tirelessly on this program that were really invested um, because they believed in it and they knew it was a program that would uh, benefit people who deserved the recognition for all of the work they did. Um, that I think that dedication is what made it successful. So having um, the the right resources, the the amount of resources uh, that are available, um, is really I think what made this successful. And uh, having those those touch points and that real human interaction uh, and and um, in real dedication to a program that people believe in, I think is, is what the key was for, for this and the, the thing I will take away from it. Yeah, definitely. And then my last question for you, you know, this, this work uh, seems to have made quite an impression on, you know, other folks around the country, seeing as you guys were just awarded the NACIO State uh, IT Recognition Award for this. Um, so would you mind talking a little bit about what that award means for you guys? Yeah, it's, I mean, we're really honored uh, to even be recognized at all. Uh, we, we know the amount of work and that went into this. Um, and in fact, I, I often say it was basically a program that we lived and breathed every day for, um, you know, now it's been over a year, but uh, for, for basically six months. Uh, and it just means so much to be recognized for all of the, the hard work that was put into it, but also means a lot because of what the program did. Um, you know, in the end, it's not about us. It's not about the Department of Labor and Industry. While we're proud of our work, we're more proud of the fact that the state of Minnesota was able to put a program together that would give recognition to the workers that really got us through the, the pandemic, um, often to, at their own risk. So um, I, I am honored to 
to be recognized, but um, even more so to recognize the program and the amount of good it did for working Minnesotans. Nicole Blissenbach, Commissioner of Minnesota's Department of Labor and Industry. You can read more about her and the project at statesgroup.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also check out all of the other nominees for NACIO State IT Recognition Awards there too. StateScoop and EdScoop's 2023 IT Modernization Summit is now available on demand. The summit, which originally aired September 19th, features more than two dozen incredible leaders from across the state and local government community on all things digital transformation. From emerging tech to strategic collaboration, CIOs from across the country explain their approaches to IT modernization. Sessions are available for you to view now on demand at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. High school teachers in Northern Virginia are putting on a first-of-its-kind cybersecurity conference for students in the state. The event, called CyberSlam, brought together more than 400 students in January to help expand cybersecurity education and help close the cybersecurity workforce gap. Jennifer Martin is a teacher at Loudoun County High School. She, along with a handful of other teachers, created the event. She tells me how it got started and what's coming next. So the effort started really two years ago when uh, Chris Stark, who's another teacher, uh, came up with the idea of, you know what, let's take cyber out of the classroom. And he was working with some people in um, our local area and he pulled me in and he said, let's, let's make this work. So we, what we did is we got um, some local um, experts in cybersecurity together, as well as some of our local um, some of the professors that came in and we had, I guess, local you know people came in and we had the this idea that we would bring all the kids in for one day for a, a cool, fun cybersecurity conference. And so it ended up being on a Saturday at one of our local high schools. And we were shocked that actually 200 kids showed up. That was awesome. So we had 200 kids show up for this event and they loved it. But one thing that we had for the feedback was, it was really cool hearing from these people, but you know what, we want hands-on. So Chris and I got back together and we came up with what we did this year, which was all hands-on activities. And it grew from just our local county of Loudoun County to five counties around the state. And um, and 400 students. So we got all these kids together. George Mason University was amazing. And uh, Dr. Browse stepped in and said, yes, we will be your uh, venue for this event. We had it in January and it was awesome. So we had keynote speakers from Secret Service come in. We had Alicia Andrews come in from um, the state of Virginia, and at the time she was the acting director of uh, cybersecurity. And we had other guest speakers come in just to welcome the students. And then we went right into four sessions of hands-on learning. These kids went from learning about penetration testing to cryptography to cybersecurity and drones. So we actually had drones that these kids could fly and talking about the cybersecurity and drones. That was amazing. And uh, and then we had another um, sessions with Capture the Flag, which is gamification for cybersecurity. All of these sessions 
were, were done by either local professionals or by professors. And it was a huge hit. Um, Chris and I raised all of our own money. We didn't get any money from the states. We didn't get any really support. So we kind of did it all ourselves. <laughs> and um, thank you to all of our sponsors out there. Yay. And, um, and we said, you know what? We can do this better. We can make this bigger. We can make it better. We can reach more kids. And in this particular conference that we had in January, um, it was great because we reached a lot of the rural communities in um, Louisa County, Spotsylvania County, and and more of the socioeconomic areas. Uh, so that's fantastic. So what we're planning now is we want to do the same thing, but bigger and better for next year. George Mason University, again, is going to sponsor us. We have more uh, talent coming in to do these hands-on learnings. And, um, and we have hopefully more sponsorship coming in because it's going to cost us a lot more money. Um, but I was just at a conference last week with the uh, uh, Virginia Cyber Range, the Virginia Cybersecurity Educators uh, Conference, and was talking about it. I had schools come up to me from all over the state of Virginia, from Norfolk, from Richmond, from Christiansburg. These are areas that don't get this type of, of outreach from cybersecurity. And they're all interested in coming to this one day session. So what we're doing now is we're, we're doing planning for it. And uh, we're, like I said, getting um, a lot of the um, professors, at, in the state to come in to give different talks and to um, do all hands-on as well as some of the industry leaders. So I'm really excited that we're reaching more girls. Um, we had 35% girls that attended the last one. We're hoping to get more girls in. We're hoping to get more of the underprivileged um, Title I schools involved and raise money so that they can come for free and pay for their transportation and really get cybersecurity out there. So Jake, you might be asking why, what's the point, right? So really the point of this whole thing is, is the need, right? So let's start instead of saying, hey kid, are you interested in cybersecurity at the collegiate level? Let's start in high school. Let's get the interest out there. Let's show these kids that not every cybersecurity professional is wearing a hoodie and coding for eight hours in their parents' basement. Let's get that out and, and show them exactly what else can be done. So that's kind of the whole premise for this conference. So it's not just for the cybersecurity um, high school students. It's really for cybersecurity professionals in the future, right? Get these kids excited, get them engaged and see if this is their passion or not. And um, and that's why we're so really passionate about um, the Virginia Cyber Slam and, um, and having it in January, on January 19th in 2024 at George Mason University and really asking your audience, hey, who wants to come and help support this? Not just financially, but we need instructors. We need people who are gonna be interested in coming in and saying, hey, Jen, I'll come in and I will teach something on pen testing or 
you know what, I can come in and I can show these kids um, hands-on what we do on a daily basis when it comes to digital forensics. How cool is that? So we have some of that already lined up. And um, I just want to remind everybody, you know, we're, we're teaching white hat stuff. So don't come in with crazy stuff. Um, these are high schoolers. Um, so <laughs> but, but we need support. And like I said, this is just two teachers with an idea and asking for support and yeah. asking um, for encouragement, honestly. And hopefully what we do, Jake, in Virginia is gonna grow and then we can use that in the future, right? So hopefully this type of activity will be adopted by other um, the states. And we are happy to do this. So I, I just put in a proposal to talk at the NICE K-12 conference in December, if I can get funding to fly out there. Um, it's, it's in Arizona. And um, to try to challenge other educators, whether it's college or if it's high school, it doesn't matter, even middle school, to do something like this for this population, right? From the high school and even if you want to go back further, maybe middle school population. If we get these kids young, I know I'm saying this again, but if we get them young and we get them engaged and we get them to understand that cybersecurity is such a broad field and there's such a need with 0% unemployment, they've got such a huge future. And Jake, the other thing that's important is, you know what? If they do study cybersecurity, they can get certifications right in high school, in high school, right? And go right into the workforce, right? Some of these kids aren't college bound. They don't want to go or they can't afford to go, right? Some of these kids are going to go into the military. What a great way to get them into the military and get them into some kind of cyber um, field in the military. Or they go on to um, an education, uh, either a two or four year college degree and, and explore further cybersecurity and computer science. How great is that? Let's, let's get caught up with our adversaries, right? Let's get ahead of them. Let's get these kids excited and engaged. And tell me a little bit, you know, nuts and bolts wise, like, when you had the idea, you and Chris had that idea for that first first event, um, what what was your planning process? How did you get from start to finish? How did you get to the point where uh, you were in the position to to put on such a successful event with with so many attendees? Great question. So the first thing we did was Chris got in touch with a gentleman named Chris Freiberg from the Loudoun County Economic Development Office. He was awesome. He started this organization called the Cyber Meetup. And he brought in local talent who, uh, like industry leaders and, and um, anybody who was in cyber and um, into this forum that met once a month. And, um, and we started talking to him. Then we brought in another leader, leader from another corporation <clears throat> and got his buy-in. And it's all networking, right, Jake? I mean, that's just like anything. 
And that's what I did before I was a teacher <laughs> in IT. It's all about networking who you know and what you know, right? And um, and so we just reached out to their networks and people that we knew. And the first one we had, we had Andrew McCabe came in, the former director of the FBI. Awesome, right? And then we had Eric Cole, Dr. Eric Cole, who is a cybersecurity genius and is the, um, he was, I don't know if he still is, um, but the cybersecurity expert for Bill Gates. He came in and talked to these kids. And Dr. David Raymond from Virginia Tech, who is the director of the Virginia Cyber Range and still teaches um, the master's level programs for cybersecurity. So when you bring in these big guns, right? And these kids get excited and they're like, wow, these people made it, right? And they hear their story. It's pretty exciting. So that's kind of how we got started. So it was all about networking and, and asking people for sponsorship. Yeah. So that's how, how we did it the first year. So when you look out across the country and when you meet people at conferences and industry events uh, who are probably interested in doing something similar in your states, one, I mean, what advice do you have for them? And two, you know, how do you see all of these types of engagements growing and expanding to reach more kids, to help more people, and, and ultimately work together to, to achieve this vision of educating the next generation of, of cyber workforce? Great question. So I would say if there's anyone out there, um, it doesn't matter which state you're in, right? Uh, cybersecurity is important in all states and territories. Uh, we have to get ahead of the adversaries. And again, it's by training our youth, right? And bringing them up. So when we're thinking about that, and if there is anyone out there who is interested in starting this, reach out to your local school system. Find who's responsible for their cyber programs, because you would be amazed at how many high schools are offering cyber programs. And I, I, I didn't even know until this year that Huntsville, Alabama has a technical school for cybersecurity. And it's a boarding school for high school, only for um, kids in Alabama, which is awesome. But man, I wish we had that <laughs> in every state, right? But how cool is that? Reach out to your school systems. See how you can engage. And any of these school systems can do exactly what Chris and I have been doing. Anybody can do it. If we can do it, they can do it, right? And But it's getting the buy-in. It's getting people in industry and in government saying, yeah, this is the future. We have to reach these kids now. How do we do that? How do we bring these kids together? And forming a plan, we're we are happy to share everything that we did. We're happy to give out our our promotion stuff, our sponsorship letters, all that information on the how tos. So, but but we need to see it happen, right? And you'll see cybersecurity is growing so quickly in so many states, and you can see it with so much of the gamification that's going on and the cyber competitions. So not only is the state of Virginia doing really well with, with cyber education, Texas is flourishing, uh, California is flourishing. And 
all of it, but so many other places can do it if you take the initiative and want to do it and you have the passion. So hopefully you hear the passion of cybersecurity of, from, from me because this is just one of the things that I'm very passionate about and not just reaching the kids in the suburban areas. Let's reach those kids in the rural areas. Let's reach those underprivileged. Let's get more girls in cyber. This can happen. This can happen when government and corporate um, cyber organizations come together and work with the local school systems. Easy, right? Jed Martin, a teacher at Loudoun County High School and founder of the CyberSlam event. You can read more about her and the event and get involved yourself at statescoop.com and the links in today's show notes. You can subscribe to the Priorities Podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, be sure to leave a review or rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put it together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.